Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Welcome back to 007 by 7 the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Ingle. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at minutes 7 through 14, which begin with Kronstein tearing up the secret message before handily dispatching his chess opponent and end with people leaving the Russian consulate in Istanbul. In between, Rosa Klebb, Blofeld, and Kronstein hatch a plot to get James Bond. Red Grant gets a sexy massage on Spectre Island. Kleb arrives to be escorted through the Spectre training grounds and then inspects Grant and punches him in the gut with some brass knuckles. And today we have as our guest Katie Stover, who is the Director of Reader Services at the Kansas City Public Library. Welcome, Katie. Hello, gentlemen. Hi. So, so we understand that you had a COVID bond marathon. You had seen a few of these, but mostly not these movies, and you watched them all in order over a period of how, how long? I, according to my notes, it looks as if I started the beginning of August, and I finished in, I, fi- <laughs> I finished the end of January, there were a couple of weeks I took off from, from watching them, and I, yes. and I, I don't know why I did that, <laughs> I thought, I thought, I need a goal, everybody needs a project, this sounds like a good one. So I'll do that. I was listening to the first season of 007 by 7, and I thought, well, okay, I'll just keep, I'll just keep going. Why not just keep going? And my notes seem to uh, fall into two categories. Mostly WTF is going on in this movie. Uh, I see that, I think, in every single note, and I watched all of them, including Casino Royale, the one with Daniel Craig, and the one with Woody Allen, and then I watched Never Say Never Again. And so, if it if it was kind of part of this segment, if the, this universe, then I watched it. <laughs> I, I it took me a couple of tries to watch the Woody Allen Casino Royale because <laughs> yeah. I had no idea what the hell was going on. It made no bloody sense. None of them did either when they were making it. So. And there were other Bond movies that I just thought, I don't think I know what's going on. I'm still not sure I understand what's going on in Moonraker. Um, I've watched Dr. No a couple of times and From Russia with Love a couple of times. No trouble watching Casino Royale with Daniel Craig a couple of times. I was at least on three or four with that. And did then you when read I, any of the books? I had read Casino Royale. And really liked that book and found that and Casino Royale with Daniel Craig to be very faithful. And I read Dr. No last summer and read From Russia with Love. Just uh, like, I think I just finished that a couple of weeks ago. Did, did you uh, listen to them or, or read them? Because I know you do a lot of work with audiobooks and, and you judge some audiobooks <laughs> contests and, and all that stuff. 
Yes, I judge the Audis and I review audio for Booklist magazine, um, soon to review audio for Library Journal. Um, I listened to Dr. No and listened to From Russia with Love and read Casino Royale. And to be perfectly frank, I don't remember Casino Royale as well as I remember Dr. No and From Russia with Love. Those. Did you listen to the Blackstone audio books, the ones that Robert Whitfield narrates? He uses a different, it's not his real name, I guess that's his, I don't know, what. what's an audio pseudonym? It's, that's what he records as, but that's not his real name. Oh, nom de audio? I don't know. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> he's, uh, I, I know he's, uh, you told me his name, and I thought, no, it's Simon Pribble, but the, let's see, I'm looking up the author of From Russia, the narrator of From Russia with Love, because it wasn't the same guy, but he did oh. a great job. Toby Stevens. And oh, Toby Stevens, right. Toby Stevens. He was terrific. He did. Yeah, well, and he he's he plays James Bond in the BBC audio oh. dramatizations of the Bond books as well. So I remember thinking while I was listening to this one that I liked the voice of James Bond. The tone seemed to fit better with this book than it did with Dr. No. Even though I appreciate all the voices that that narrator did, it was it was better this was a better narration. This was a better fit of narrator to work. Yeah. So other than these WTF moments that you said you had through the Bond series, did you come away with any other sort of big impressions of, I don't know, of, of which ones, which were the most effective or who, which James Bond was most interesting? Or I'm just, I'm just curious, like given that it was a first blush really with all of these films. I know when I first started talking to you about this, I told you that the first James Bond I had any experience with was Roger Moore, the one you call comedy Bond. And when I talked to my brothers and sisters, we all have the same first James Bond movie moment. It's see, I think I went with my twin brother and sister and my younger brother. I think we all just went on the same date to see For Your Eyes Only, because that's the first one they all remembered when we talked about it. And so, of course, there was always a special place in my heart for Roger Moore. And now there's not anymore. He's been supplanted. <laughs> I really liked Sean Connery. And I liked uh, Pierce Brosnan more than I thought I would. I, I got what he was trying to do. And I really liked Daniel Craig a lot. The one thing that struck me throughout most of these films is I kept thinking that there would be a point where everyone would just decide, well, fuck the story. We're just going to go blow something up or do some action. And I'd get angry because I would feel that the story would go in a really weird direction or not even bother with itself. And since I'm a person that reads for story and likes a pretty good narrative, I'd get irked. That I would feel as if my intelligence was getting insulted. And I would say, no, there's no reason for that. You can do... Lazy writing. There's got to be better writing here. And and there wouldn't be. And then they would just, like, you know, over here, we're going to blow something up. Go have a look at that. And that was sometimes yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes they get, it gets it gets pretty rough. I, I just watched uh, the first, the only four Matt Helm movies. And I watched one a night. And these were made from basically 65 to 68, something like that. They were making one a year. And so they were 
keeping up with the Bond films and making fun of them. And at the risk of whataboutism, as bad as it ever gets in the Bond films, the Matt Helm films are just worse, like at every turn. And yet, interestingly enough, there's a whole bunch of gags and ideas that get taken from the Matt Helm movies by Tom Mankiewicz and put into the parody James Bond movies. So it's really, it was really weird. Uh, but yeah, same kind of just lame writing. And this question of, like, you're right, they insult your intelligence in a way. It's like, is th I know we're supposed to, like, put our brain under the seat for the period that we watched the movie but there's the good James Bond movies seem to make a contract with the viewer where they say okay yeah it's going to be escapism but we're going to have some guardrails to keep this thing on the road others don't but that does seem like there's a little bit more attention paid to it than than certainly the Matt Helm movies or a lot of the other movies that were just parodies of these films I have lots of uh notes and all my notes john this is what i did there i like this stack of notes and they're on envelopes and scraps <laughs> of cardboard and yeah. just scraps of paper and some of them apparently are in photos of text to mitch usually with the what the fuck is going on and what the hell with all these women and <laughs> <laughs> why are they not dressed why are they stupid <laughs> but that was the well, other you get some good minutes for that then today because yeah talk yeah about, we, we talk do. about that in a minute <laughs> But well, the, the other thing I noticed was just the women, and I get it. I mean, I was willing to suspend all disbelief and just sit back and think, okay, this is a product of the time. But every once in a while, that would just get irritating. Uh, I'm the person that never minded when the Bond girl died because I thought, yeah, go. You're too dumb to live. Well, that's the other thing about these Matt Helm movies that struck me. It's like the the salaciousness of these films that are being made as the same times as the Bond films, but the difference is that, as we'll discuss today, we definitely are invited to look, but the Matt Helm movies are completely about leering, and they're constantly putting the camera as close to parts of the anatomy as they possibly can, and it was really, it was really kind of amazing to me because here they're being made at the same time and there is a kind of English restraint that's going on with the Bond films and also a kind of perversity where they're not going to really give you what you want and so there's a little game going on. These Matt Helm movies don't think about it that way at all. And weirdly enough, they're produced by Cubby Broccoli's partner, former partner, Irving Allen, who said the Bond, movies, Bond books weren't worth making into movies. And so then Cubby Broccoli goes, starts this incredibly popular series and Irving Allen decides, oh, well, gee, maybe he was onto something, so I'll buy the, the American James Bond books by Donald Hamilton and we'll make these movies and we'll put Dean Martin in them which is also just more strange strangeness because Dean Martin is certainly closer I guess to the Roger Moore James Bond than he is to the Sean Connery James Bond but you never had Roger Moore singing on the soundtrack as <laughs> Matt Helm leers at women and fantasizes having sex with all of them as he's photographing them it's just bananas um, I digress maybe we'll do a Patreon episode John on Matt Helm movies. Sure. I'll have to watch some. I've only seen one, and I don't even remember which one it was. Yeah, they all blur together more than the yeah. Bond films blur together. You know, yeah. it occurs to me right now, Mitch, that when you talk about the two different ways those films look at women, the women in the James Bond films, they're, I'm reminded of American GI pinups. That's the look that, that I think I see. That You're right. They're not... It's not salacious. The 
camera's not going straight to body parts. It's almost cheesecake. Well, let's jump into these minutes. I would also add, Katie, you're taking one for the team here because here is the section of the movie where James Bond does not appear in any way, shape, or form except to be named once. And I don't think there's seven minutes in, in the James Bond series probably ever again where James Bond does not appear for seven minutes of a, of a and more than seven. It's almost ten minutes because there's a couple there's there's several scenes coming up after your minutes end where Bond doesn't show up either. So this is a big chunk. In the book, it's ten chapters and ninety two pages before James James Bond appears. So you cast the librarian for the boring section of the <laughs> I, I cast the librarian for the literary <laughs> section of our conversation today. <laughs> and that's why I wanted to mention chapters and page numbers because it's 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 important. But but so we pick this up in the chess match, and Kronstein has just torn up the secret message, and he dispatches his opponent very methodically and visually, and all it takes is the opponent to topple his own piece over and then say, congratulations, a brilliant coup. We don't have to know anything about the game or what's going on. We know in just these two gestures that Kronstein is really smart. A genius, a mastermind. Yeah, this is the moment, you know, we'll, this will probably be the last mention of the Queen's Gambit. You know, we, t we talked about the last episode, but this is the you resign now moment when Mr. Scheibel tells her, okay, you don't play, we don't even need to play this out. You just resign. But he tells her real chess players don't topple their kings. So this guy, uh, this guy's not a, a, obviously not a student of Mr. Scheibel, but, uh, <laughs> I just I can't help but to think about Queen's Gambit now in any chess scene that I see. But clearly this is a move that's going to take a few. He doesn't check him. He doesn't say anything, right? He just makes the move. And clearly this is a few moves away from checkmate, but inevitable, which is interesting. I, I'm not sure how accurate or whether they even thought through the accuracy of the move and the pieces on the board. But it uh, doesn't matter, right? Did you notice when Kronstein walks out, he walks through the crowd. Somebody sticks their hand out to shake his hand. And oh, yeah, absolutely. Totally, totally ignores the guy, man. He is like, he's got to go see Blofeld. We're not going to shake anybody's hands at this point. One That one action takes care of about three quarters of a page of text. How he explains, I can't stop to talk to anybody. I have to, I have to go. I'm in a rush. That, I thought that was very well adapted, all of that. I like that. Well, he's a jerk. I mean, it's, you know, he's he's clearly a bad guy. We already kind of know that, but now we really know that because he's just flat out rude to someone. And I think it looks like the guy's wife kind of like nudges him. <laughs> the guy sticks his hand out to shake it. Honey, he's got don't. a smile on his face. He does it and the wife is like, just sit down. That's what it kind of looks like. Embarrassing me again. God, why do you always try to shake these guys' hands? <laughs> just wants to touch greatness, I guess. Well, Terrence Young said that he cast... Um, this actor because he was afraid that n they, people might forget who he was because there's so much going on in the first part of the movie and that mm. they always see him and go, ah, he's the chess player. And in a way, maybe it's better, you know, that he doesn't say anything in this scene because you just look at him, you know, and you're waiting yeah. for him to speak. And he will speak. He will, he will eventually speak. He's got a, him a minute or two. He's got a, like, Looney Tunes animation face, like his... Uh... I, his eyelids are dark. Did you notice that? He's got these like, kind of like, dro they droop a little bit and they're a different color than the rest of his face. And it makes you think of like Peter Lorre in a Looney Tunes cartoon or something. Oh, yeah. Totally. And uh, Peter Lorre. Very memorable face. 
I thought he was bleary-eyed from staring at the board, but... <laughs> from just thinking about his genius plans that can't fail all the time. Well, he, He's very after confident. That, after that rude exit, uh, we're, we've, we're given the first of several dissolves that are going to connect these scenes. And John and I talk a lot about transitions, because what else are you going to talk about? And so I think it's really interesting how the dissolves work in these sequences and when we finally get the hard cut. So we're gonna, we'll be looking out for that. But from, uh, from scene to scene, we get these dissolves. We go to this beautiful yacht. I don't know where it's moored. I guess somewhere off the coast of Venice, but we don't, we don't know. We then move into Pinewood Studios <laughs> on, a, on a fake I uh, do have to yacht. S- yacht I do set. have to say that when we get to that establishing shot, the with the music and the shot of this like ship in a harbor, I do kind of instinctively want to hear Gopher making some sort of an announcement about the promenade deck, yes, or something. It's like that that instinct just to immediately think, oh, we're about ship. To, we've now docked in Puerto Vallarta or wherever. It does look like the love boat. It's not nearly <laughs> not as quite that as big. You John, right. are you uh, needing a nightcap and a, and some shuffleboard? Is that sure? It? Good. Talk to Isaac. Uh, tell him to mix me something up. <laughs> Well, I don't know if you noticed, but when when Kronstein comes down the stairs and there's the first guard there who's got his gun and he's dressed in black. And before he's able to even get near that door, a second guard comes down from behind him and gives him the stink eye and everything just kind of halts. Yeah. Clearly, he's being held outside until. And yeah, he's surprised a little bit. He's surprised at the second guy uh, for sure. And I just love how these we get these generic uh, what the generic henchman was in the early 60s is so different than what it is now or has been for a long time. They finally figured out, hey, you know, if we put them in a suit, they'll look respectable. They can hide their weapons. They don't have to be obvious gunmen with a, with <laughs> utility belts on. It's crazy. <laughs> like, That's make them a little more kit, subtle. Right? Yeah. And dark all pants, black. Short. Yeah, belt. Yep. Yeah. Utility belt. I love you know, the utility If we belt. put them in a suit, we'll run a wire up to the ear, and they can have weapons underneath the suit, and nobody will know the better. You think they have uh, grappling hooks on those utility belts? Oh, I would hope so. I hope so. Because yeah. if it doesn't have a grappling have a, hook in it, I'm it's not, not a utility belt, technically, if it doesn't have a grappling hook. Uh, so the, this first next scene, as we move into the, to the, big, the big conference... Everybody probably knows this, but I'll mention it anyway. So this is this is a scene that begins with a reverse action shot. So Lottie Lenya is walking, Rosa Klebb is walking backwards and then kind of kneels to look into the fish tank. And that's because that's a shot that it was used later in the scene and they didn't know how to get into the scene. And so they said, well, let's just I'll just run that backwards and make her go look and then she'll stand up and walk away. And so when you watch it now, you know, you'll see it. But this whole section was this terrible mix and match mess as they got into post-production and like according to these notes the original order was going to be the titles then grant kills the fake bond then grant gets massaged and rosa Klebb shows up on specter island then she goes to recruit tanya then they go to the chess match and the chess match leads into this briefing and so all that has been re reshifted so that we get the plan up front before everything else happens which if you read enough about these bond films that seems to be a constant struggle like there was a in goldfinger they initially didn't shoot all the information telling you what the car was going to do 
And then they realized, oh, no, we need to tell you that up front. So when the car does it, it'll be exciting. So same thing here. They decided we need to move this yacht scene up and set up the whole plan first before we meet Tanya and, and some of these other things. Yeah. You know, it's the, that reverse shot that you get in the opening. It, it is it settles weird. Like when you're coming in, it's you're like, what is this behavior about? And I think the way I read it, you know, I didn't know that about it until today. But um, that it was a reverse shot. But I think I read it that he had just told her, oh, I have these great fish. You have to look at the fish. And she's like, yeah, fish, uh, these over here. It's like this weird, like, <laughs> like she doesn't really want to look at the fish that much, but she knows she has to because it's a, it's a Blofeld. That <laughs> so she's, the whole thing is too. so bizarre. And I thought, why, why is someone like that, someone so dedicated to the mission and she's in a meeting with her boss why is she walking over to look in a fish tank and i have <laughs> at for a moment i had no idea what was going on i did notice how oddly she was moving and then she's just staring and she's enraptured with these fighting fish and i thought that and then that didn't seem to mesh with the rest of her character throughout that scene where all of a sudden she just gets focused and she's just like wow these fish it's so cool it's almost a little bit of a dreamy expression on her face and i thought that's not you i know exactly what i'm supposed to get just from the first look at you but that doesn't match i always feel like she's kind of patronizing him a little bit and she doesn't she has no interest in these fish at all it's like he explains it to her in depth and she's like yes i find that uh She's, it's sort of like when somebody tells you something you're not that interested in, but you have to pretend like you are. So you come up with something to say like, oh, yes, I find the uh, correlation amusing. And then the funniest part is when he's like, well, I didn't bring you here to amuse you. It's like, what can I, how can I win here? <laughs> come right, on, right. come on, and Blofeld. that line about the correlation and amusement or something was originally a Blofeld line. And then, right. then they gave it to, they switched it up and gave it to Lottie Lenya because they reshot this scene multiple times. And... You know, all through the the ship is turning back and forth and you can see light shifting in the background, you know, to give it a sense of movement. But then when they cut to her close ups for the back half of the scene, nothing's moving because it's a reshoot and she's in front of a single still plate of the ship and giving up these lines of dialogue that have then been have since been rewritten and the scene has been reconstructed. So it's really Wait, but amazing. No close ups have any movement in them. Like the only uh, no, that's not true. Actually, oh, I didn't a, notice any. I kept watching it over and over initial, again, looking. Her initial close up, you can see the light behind her on the beam move across the beam, and so there's mm. motion in that one. And then on mm. the reshoots, because the set had been torn down, and they had to put her in front of a screen with a still frame, there's no movement on it. But there's no camera wobbling. Like there's two couple of the wider shots where they actually are moving the camera back and right. forth. That's and what I mean. That's that's yeah. trick number one, and then trick number it's, two is there's this this light that's shifting back and forth in the background as if it's again if it's, as if the boat is rolling on the you know on the water and the sunlight is tracking across that beam in the back. I thought that was strange watching the camera go back and forth, and I thought, well, that's that was a little jarring. I understood why. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's um, it's one of those things where you might have thought like now they might think, well, not now, but even in subsequent years after they might think, okay, we want the boat movement, but maybe we should also shoot some coverage where the, where the camera's not moving in case we need to measure because to me, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's no good. Like 
once they don't have movement in the other shots, they shouldn't have had any movement at all. I don't care. It doesn't do anything for me that that camera moves around and says we're on a boat. I know you're on a boat. We don't need the rocking unless you're going to be consistent with it. If you're not going to be consistent with it, I'd rather be consistent with no motion and just think about the scene. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's always the issue with boat scenes. There's some people who are just determined to have the damn thing on gimbals and everything has Mm -hmm. to be moving. And then... There's other boat movies where you're like, nothing's moving in it. I don't really care because I should be paying attention to the actors and, and the story, not whether yeah. or not the boat is convincingly moving right. from side to side. That was an odd note that I had. All of a sudden, I thought, why are they doing that? It's as if someone yeah. was told, do that. <laughs> Move the camera. We, we do get our first sight of Blofeld's cat at this point, mm-hmm. which is the iconic white cat that's going to appear again and again Mm -hmm. through these movies which raises the philosophical question we had going all the way back to alien uh is this an evil cat or is it just are cats just cats or do they have malevolence in them because we talked extensively about whether jones was in with in it with the alien or not back in alien in this case it's blofeld's cat is this an innocent cat or not i mean i just want to know does this does the eating the fish tell the tale that it's not like it's so quick to just eat a live fish. I don't know. I don't know, you guys. I got I got dogs. I don't have cats. You you guys can, you Mike, guys can solve this one. Katie, Mike. any thoughts about the cat? Uh, it's a luxury item, and it's act- <laughs> it's acting very like a cat. No, actually, no, it's not. It's sitting pretty darn quietly for a cat. It's and I actually have in my notes. I'm like, is that cat drugged? Because that That's- cat's. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I had the exact same question. Yeah. He thinks he's going to get a fish, though. So maybe do they do they not wait for their food the way that dogs do? No. no. They yell at they yell at you until they, yeah they, get they their yell food. they yell like hell. <laughs> my cat would be if they, my cat was expecting one of those fish, it would be staring me straight in the face. Yeah. Whining. <laughs> what wow. I what I was it, surprised at is that this cat is just it's picture perfect. It's staring right into the camera. It's calm. It's being petted, but it's not responding to any of the petting. It's just, I'm just here. It, it could almost be stuffed. But, uh, and every once in a while, it, it, John, you know, you can only hold a cat like that for so long before it starts fidgeting and missing around and it starts to scream at you, put me down. There's, yeah, there's like the rare cat that can sit still but they're very rare yeah they're usually very old and this cat is very young super clean for a white cat too my god well Well, i'm sure blofeld has somebody who just does nothing but take care of his cat for him right yeah some poor guy in a black outfit that's just covered in white cat hair his (laughs) utility belt has like multiple different brushes on it and (laughs) flea medicines we should probably mention that uh, the hands Petting the cat belonged to Anthony Dawson, Professor Dent from Dr. No, and he Mm -hmm. will again play Blofeld in the other Terrence Young James Bond film, Thunderball. So he is in this elite group of actors who play multiple characters in James Bond films, and there's several in From Russia With Love. We'll get to Walter Gotell in a minute, who um, plays uh, Morezzi, the the other guy, uh, Spectre guy, the the main Spectre Island guy. And then, of course, Martine Beswick, who we will have an interview with down the line. Uh, she was played two different Bond characters, and so it's a it's a small fraternity slash sorority of actors who have been in Bond films repeatedly playing different characters. Can I ask you guys about the gentleman who voices Blofeld? 
because yeah, Eric Eric Pullman. Yes, I was watching my minutes again last night, and his voice reminded me of Sean Connery's a little bit. Absolutely. Okay, oh, good. Well, I just want to make sure I wasn't. Oh, imagining he things. definitely has has the eshes. Like yes. he German. does that. Yeah, it's funny because every time I hear him talk, I'm like, I, I for one second think, is Connor is Connery. But it's, I know it's not, but it does. he does do similar things. He's a little bit more, even more, he's a little extra Connery in some places with the S's. <laughs> so, Wow. And then that'll be, he'll do it twice, and then there'll be somebody else who will take over the, the Blofeld voice because we'll start seeing Blofeld's faces after that. Uh, I should also mention, I noticed in this, I had a note here that, that uh, Rosa Klebb is identified as number three, Kronstein as number five, we know that Blofeld's number one. So I just wondered, who's number two and number four? Was Dr. No number two? Oh. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, do you just replace? Does she just move up to a spot if you dispatch of one of them? Or does the number get retired, like in the Hall of Fame? I don't in know. In the Spectre Hall of Fame. These are some deep, deep Spectre questions that probably... Somebody knows, probably, somebody knows these answers. Somebody knows the answer. Doctor knows Jersey is hanging somewhere in a it's hall in, of fame. It's, it's in Cooperstown right now. <laughs> Nary jacket in Cooperstown. <laughs> they do. You know, it's interesting, and and we're jumping around a little bit because I do want to get to the plan in a minute. But they do name check Doctor No in this scene, which I think is really interesting. Mm -hmm. One because it, like with Sylvia Trench, who we'll meet eventually, this is very much a part of another film. It's clearly a sequel, and these, they're, they are related to each other. But even in Fleming's novel, Dr. No hasn't happened yet in the chronology of the books, but there is a paragraph where, in this case, it's a, it's a Russian general. He name-checks Dr. No, Mr. Big, Hugo Drax, and that diamond affair that James Bond is just coming <laughs> off of. With the sausage so, guy. <laughs> so they name check all four of these of the villains so there's a nice connection with that like in terms of adaptation it's the same yeah. idea it's just there's fewer villains to name check well it's part of the exposition of the scene and we should talk about the ex expositional approach of this scene because it does that thing you know you kind of you'll forgive it in a movie from this era but there's no way you can get away with it now where people give multiple details about a person that they're actually just mentioning that the other person you know i did not well for one thing he says when he tells her you know that she finds the fish amusing he says i did not have you retire <laughs> defect from she tells her her backstory was i did not oh, do I didn't that have you know you defect from specter so you <laughs> just, can look at my fish oh no yeah so you could be amused right yeah and then and then it, you know I don't believe M, the head of British intelligence. You know, it's, all, it's like me. It's like if I saw Katie out in the street, I'd say, hey, our friend Mitch Bryan, professor at Uni the University of Missouri, Kansas City, says, hi. You know, uh, it's kind of the same thing, but it's just such an unnatural way. But it's it's good for a movie like this because we really don't want to spend too much time catching the audience up. Let's just get it. And most of, this, most of that stuff is done in voiceover, too. It's um, ADR'd in. So it's not like right, spending too much time again, with the characters. Yeah. yeah, like they're trying to figure out how much information we need to give up at this point now that we've rejigged the entire structure of the first sequence of the movie. Yeah. Uh, and I will say that this addition of Spectre playing the Americans off of the Russians, each side un unwittingly, is the best adaptation move in 
the entire James Bond world. I think this coupled with Red Grant, who who weaves his way through the story, whereas in the book he's in the first scene and then he shows up on the train at the end. Like these are two really great additions, which apparently belong to Berkeley Mather, who is uncredited, but who came in and did a big rewrite. But uh, I just wanted to, I just wanted to lay this out because I just think it's really interesting. I, I, ma I made notes. Kronstein lays out the plan. Here is the order of information and how the information is laid out. One, Spectre will steal the Russian Lecter coding machine. Then we will need the help from a Russian member of the crypto team in Istanbul and the help of the British Secret Service. Neither side will know that they're helping Spectre. And then Kleb is prepared to carry out number five's directives and has selected a girl very loyal to Russia uh, who believed Kleb is still head of ops for Soviet intelligence. Moscow has kept her embarrassing de uh, defections secret. Kronstein, certain that is foolproof as he has anticipated every possible counter move. Why? Because he's a chess player. Uh, and that M, head of the British Secret Service, will see this as a trap and yet have to respond to the chance of getting a lector. And finally, Kronstein says Spectre relishes the chance to get revenge for Dr. No because the Brits will certainly use James Bond. <laughs> so at least we get his name mentioned in these minutes. And, and don't forget, the uh, maybe maybe you mentioned it in there, but I missed it, the, the uh, fact that Brits cannot resist a challenge. Right, they will right. have, despite knowing that this is a trap, they will have to do it, not just because they want the machine, because it's in their nature right. as a nation nature. to take a challenge, which I like. I like because that, that that's establishing the world view of James Bond movies. Like it's like this is this is, movies are very much Brit British, very much about Britain's resolve, and even more so heroic and beyond the truth of it. Maybe uh, in that these they will always be up for a challenge. This is just this is almost like gaming to them in a way. Uh, which I think is kind of speaks to an understanding of the British culture that uh, that maybe we have as Americans, the way we see it in movies a lot of times. it's And Blofeld wants the demise of Bond to be particularly unpleasant and humiliating. Right. So right. again, there's this idea of British ego all being wrapped up in this entire plot. Yeah. That chapter of the book, that chapter with all the politicos around the table, I had to listen to that a couple of times to figure out exactly what was going on. And then you just summed up in a paragraph, in a piece of verbose dialogue, exactly what was going on in that chapter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because and, and the pleasures of that chapter, because I didn't even go down the other rabbit hole, which is there are all of these references to actual historical spy events and mishaps and scandals that are informing this world and that... that that in the case of the book, the Russians are embarrassed about or want to make up for or want to get revenge for because there's no specter involved in the book. All that is, I'm sure that's the kind of stuff that Kennedy loved when he read this book, you know, because it's real Cold War stuff. Mm -hmm. And all that Cold War stuff gets put aside for the movie and specter comes in as this, you know, organi villainous organization that will move us out of the world of politics and into the world of, 60s sex violence and fantasy didn't fleming do a great deal of research for this this book he i thought i read somewhere that he's it, it's at the very beginning of the book where he says this is he's like this is accurate this is true this is the way it is and i thought well 
that's pretty interesting to think of all these all these folks coming together and talking about a plan like this and talking about their history and 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 they're all I, I thought it was particularly humorous where they're trying to remember the name of James Bond in the book and then all of a sudden someone's like oh yes James Bond that guy yeah well and Fleming I think at this point wanted to forget James Bond he he really does think about killing James Bond at the end of the novel from Russia with Love he's kind of tired of him and that's probably why we've got 10 chapters with no James Bond in it and instead, it, he gets to do all this cool Cold War spycraft stuff that clearly is way more interesting to him than James Bond is at this point. That was some beautiful writing, too, in the book. The first 10 chapters are just, it's exquisite writing, it's suspenseful, it's thoughtfully laying out a plot that I was really getting interested in. And then it shifts because this plot hinges on some girl seeing Bond's photo and falling in love with him and then the story picks up a lot of picks up a lot of steam and I went with it but I couldn't help but think while I was listening to the rest of this from Russia with Love what would this novel be like if Fleming had just capitalized on what he was laying out in the first 10 chapters and I wondered if he wasn't trying to set up his reading public his editor his publisher for this is where I want to go this is where I want to take my career this is what my next book will be and then the mo the money from the movies start roaring in and he's like, oh boy, I don't know if I can really stop now. <laughs> and I think that if you look at the first few paragraphs of the novel, what you get is this great technique that Fleming has of this micro macro thing that he does. And so he's talking about the sweat on Red Grant's body and a dragonfly and just this tiny, tiny, tiny micro look at things before then it will blast out into this giant macro representation of Cold War politics. And he does this this shrinking and expanding it's his big trick in in oh. his literary style. It's real fetishy though with Red Grant's oh, totally. body. Oh yeah. Like he goes not just sweat, but the tiny, almost imperceptible blonde hairs at the bottom of his back and all that stuff. It's yeah. like, man, we're almost going too far. We're almost getting into Fantastic Voyage here, man. <laughs> like uh, it's getting a little too far in. But uh, but you know he likes to. He's a fetish. He was a fetishy guy. He liked to fetishize oh, yeah. things. He liked to get in close and and uh, yeah, that's it. that is interesting though. I didn't think about it so much about the micro to macro kind of comparison. After Kronstein says that, you know, there's not going to be any failure for this plan, we get this first really hard cut, and it's right to Robert Shaw's face mm -hmm. in the grass, you know, on the mat, semi-asleep, right? I think we're miss you're missing one, one cut, though, that we should talk about. When he says there's no not going to be any failure, he looks to Kleb, and Kleb looks to him. And I'm not sure what we're supposed to read into that. I th There's... One part of me that says, was did she fail at some point? And this is him kind of needling her for it. But I think what it is is a competitive thing. I think he's just saying, I won't. There, there's a little bit of competition between oh, the two yeah. of them through the scene, right? So at the end, he's saying, don't worry, I won't fail. My part won't fail. And he's making sure that Blofeld sees that. And he's uh, number five and she's number three, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to assume there's some ambition that he she must outrank him and he doesn't he's not crazy about that because he's the one with the plan right which then suggests that maybe they do move up he wants yeah. that three he wants he wants to be Lou Gehrig or whoever anyway do you both we don't have to go back into the baseball 
<laughs> Bond <laughs> trading cards. That's what we need. Do you both believe that Latolenia uh, embodies well the character of Cleb in the book? She doesn't quite match the, the description. She's not short. She's not toady. She's not sausage stuffed stockings. Mm-mm. But no. So, but no. she does. But the actress does try very hard to look as imposing and what is it? Uh, She's not the grotesque monster that no. that she is in the book, right? Yeah. But she's still like she's still pretty, you know. She's she's I think she's threatening. I think she's mm-hmm. she's there's there's something way more lethal about her than than the club of the book. Yeah. Well, the red hair is a giveaway. That's always the sign of a traitor. It's always the sign of evil. It's true. Um, what color is your hair, Katie? Just kidding. Oh, it's redder so than Rosa Klebs. It's, it's almost yeah. It's it's. Uh, <laughs> Redheads get a bad name. Redheads I mean, get a I bad mean, rap. Y- yeah, it's uh, not fair. Tom Robbins loved him, so he he made up for it with his. Yeah. They're villains um, or they're temptresses. That's it. They do. They're villains or sirens. Villainesses or sirens. They do one or the other. But I I did note that I didn't think she was as ugly as the book described her to be and uh, and yet it was obvious the filmmakers were working on that and even she was working on it with her expressions and and the hair is just all spiky and and chopped short um but what i thought was really interesting is that she's wearing that severe tan suit and that's all she's wearing this severe suits but in that scene she's got a hint of color her blouse is purple which is what redheads would wear that's a good color for redheads and hers is not quite eggplant it's more grape colored and her lipstick is coral which is also a good match so i thought she's not fashion stupid she's figured it out a little bit so there's just there's tiny hints of femininity there i would argue that she's elegant in a lethal way i think that I think that that's the Terrence Young touch. Like he's not going to let anybody not look like they're in a movie. And I think that's one of the things that I really love about what he does with his Bond films is there is this elegance even in the most lethal or psychopathic characters. If you jump ahead to Vargas in Thunderball, he's still got this a uh, great look. Everybody has a great look in Terrence Young Bond. Then films. why not put he's her in black? Gonna... That would have been better. Because I think because everybody else wears black inspector and I think we're I think part of the game is to make her slightly apart from those henchmen, you know, that she's she's number three. Like, yeah, but there's something specifically Eastern block about that gray, too. Like yeah. that, it, it's reminiscent. Of, well, it's a little bit reminiscent of, of German Germany Nazi uniform, but more so I think it makes you think, yes, Eastern block. Hard and cold, not dark, not bl- not fully black, but uh, cold. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it yeah. does make her stand Although- out a couple of scenes later when she's walking with that crowd of guys and they're all in black. Yeah. Um, I, I wondered yeah. for a moment. <laughs> her Clary Starling moment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I did wonder for a moment, is she just in a in a different color? And I, I know you saw gray, John, but I it looked tan to me, and that could have just been huh. my TV or whatever. Um. Would the filmmakers think that if they put her not in black, which just drives home the point, she's villain, she's single-minded in her evilness, that 
it's still kind of questionable. Is it possible as a female character, she's a little wishy-washy, a little or a little complex that she her loyalties could go either way. Would the filmmakers do that with uh, color? I think so. I think sure. that they're setting her apart. I think there is an otherness about her. She's even other to the specter. Like mm. she's she is particularly unique, as we will see. Uh, and in a in a minute here, we'll we'll find out what happens when specter people touch her. But bef but before we get there, I just want to say that Lottie Lenyet by this point had won had been up for an Oscar, had been up for Golden Globe. She was famous because of her relationship uh, with Kurt Vile. And Three Penny Opera. So there, there was also a level of fame that's, and a particular kind of sophisticated kind of fame that is associated with the choice to cast her in this role, which I think, again, is just one more thing that makes this, you know, it's pop art in a way. She's a piece of popular culture that comes into this Bond story. So right. And she's calcified, too. I was going to say, I definitely didn't read the book before I saw the movie, this movie, and I definitely saw Austin Powers before um, I ever read the book too. And that's like the double, the double whammy of um, popular, like very popular film character that got parodied in a very popular film franchise. I could read five pages describing her differently in the book and never see her differently. I mean, there's just no way. I'm going to always see the movie version. Because that's just screwed into my brain now. There's no way around it. Once you're parodied to that extent and that memorably, it's over. Never, whatever the original idea was is done. Uh, not not in the movie. I think she's still very... Um, I don't think about Austin Powers a lot when I'm watching the movie or anything. But when I was reading the book, I, the descriptions were different. I'm like, this, this is different, but I'm not seeing anything different in my mind, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah, and then eventually there's a particularly grotesque moment in the book is thankfully left out of the movie involving her that we'll, we'll get to in later minutes. But uh, yeah, I think that there's there's something that we want to keep her kind of, but we want to be both attracted and repelled by her. And I think that's yeah. what that's what good movies do with their villains. Okay, so now we're cutting to Red Grant. Okay. We took so a little cut, detour there. That's a good detour. That was yeah. a good detour. Because um, I had meant to talk about Lottie Linnia and I forgot. So... Yeah, so we're in this, I want to just talk about this moment where the, so we see Red Grant, he looks up, there's this woman moving toward him, we see the guards in the background with their with their guns, we're in the Pinewood Gardens, and she walks over to him, and then she steps away from him, and he's still like, you know, his head is down in the grass, he's half asleep, he doesn't really care, he's noticed that she's coming towards him, that's all he cares about. Camera pans right. We now have a full shot of her. There's no one else in the frame. And she takes her clothes off for us. Mm -hmm. And it's so clearly this invitation to look. And it has nothing to do with Red Grant. He could not care less. This is entirely about the gaze of the audience and her being presented as this object to, to look at. Is his not caring not kind of about him? Sure, no. it is part of it, but I don't yeah. think that. But the fact that he's excluded from the frame, basically, yeah, yeah, she sure. is giving us this private show. She's not doing this for for him. And I think what's so interesting is that once she takes off her blouse and skirt, in the book she takes off even more, and and begins to give him the massage to get prepared to give him the massage. We hear the sound of a helicopter, 
and she looks. Yeah. And then we see her point of view of the helicopter. So she is being presented as an object both for us to look at and for us to see through. And I just think that's really, you know, of note. Make yeah. of it what you will. Criticize it if you will. But it's it's a it's an objectification that is also utilized for point of view, which is really unusual. Yeah, for sure. And do we have a theory as to why she takes off her clothes? Is there any practical reason? This would have been she the part in my notes where I would have written, what the fuck the women, and then texted Mitch. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, it's, she doesn't want to get oil on that skirt. I, there's like literally no reason other than that. No. And then, Same reason she does it in the, in the book. I don't remember why she does it in the book. She, she, she takes our clothes off. For it's no present, reason, you're saying. For no reason. It is okay. Presented, I thought you were going to give us a reason. The that imagination, and then Fleming describes her, and so mm -hmm. again, it's it's voyeurism. Yeah. I I made a note about the colors she was wearing and what she looked like, just because all all of a sudden the appearance of the masseuse was in such stark contrast to having just seen uh, Kleb the scene before. So I noticed, oh, all the the color palette is completely opposite. She's in cadet blue and white underwear she's blonde and pretty she's about the same height and probably a similar build underneath her clothes and i thought oh she's just the exact opposite of rosa Klebb. and i think as we see a in a couple of seconds later red takes the same notice of the masseuse this pretty young woman who's half naked as the same amount of notice as he takes of Rosa Club. I mean, for him, these women, they could be interchangeable. They could be not there. It doesn't matter. And I, I wonder if the, the white underwear kind of makes us think back to the white bikini in Dr. No. So there's a little bit of that going on. Uh, but this movie brings sex to the equation in a way that Dr. No does not. And that's the thing that I think from Russia with Love is we're building... You know what we said last week, these are the two goalposts goal and then Goldfinger's the football that gets kicked through them. We're setting right. up this structure, this paradigm for these Bond films. And I feel like if Dr. No is about fantasy and travelogue and bright colors and crazy Ken Adams sets, this movie is about sex, sex, sex and action. But mm -hmm. sex, more importantly. And that's the other, you know, Mr. Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang, right? The first movie's the Bang, Bang. This is the Kiss, Kiss. Mm-hmm. Did you notice the way that uh that oh uh, well actually I'm no wait I'll wait for that. So from from the helicopter and her preparing to do this massage, we now cut to the Spectre Mansion. Right. Which we saw at night in the previous sequence when the lights all came up and Red Grant had killed the James Bond double. So we know we're in that same, we're in the same, same place, right? Yeah. And we should note that uh, it's really simple, but we're establishing a helicopter. We're and maybe back then that was something that needed to be done. Like, hey, helicopters exist. Here's a helicopter. We might just remember that for later. But yeah, so, so we're getting the mansion uh, starkly, you know, different, uh, not nighttime, not as lethal seeming like everybody we're, we're nicely mowed garden with a man getting a massage 
And uh, it just it's just contrasting what we saw the last time for now. But as we move through the scene, we start to see that, you know, we're decidedly in the same place as we were the last time we were here. It's There's lethal things happening. This is not uh, just a lovely garden. Well, the helicopter lands and a bunch of those guys in black all show up yeah. uh, with Walter Gotell, Morsey, um, leading Morzini, who's leading them. And I suppose we should mention that Walter Gotell is he's going to be in seven James Bond movies. He's going to play this character only once, but then he'll play General Golgo in, in a bunch of the Roger Moore ones. So he's another one of those actors yeah. that has been playing different roles uh, in different in Bond films. But everybody, he says hurry to these guys, and they snap too. They run right to that helicopter. So he's clearly the boss of, of Spectre Island. And yet, decidedly not the boss, once Rosa Klebb gets... He very much, he even kind of, his body language, he even kind of bends lower to her. Yeah. Sort of like, yes, yes. And then, even though she's she's pretty harsh with him, he takes it well. He's like, you know, she, when she doesn't want to touch him, he's uh, her him to touch her. He doesn't react to that at all when he tries to get her to go to his office and she's like no take me to the lake he's like well this way <laughs> you know just like now, immediately now he knows exactly does, how to deal with these types why does she not want him to touch her that's a good question i imagine she doesn't want anybody to touch her especially probably not a man specifically i think that might be it yeah. yes i think that might be it <laughs> yes you're right maybe the anybody isn't the right thing to say good thing he didn't put his hand on the small of her back that's yeah. all i have to say <laughs> would have drawn back a bloody stump. But yes, he's very deferential to her. He hands yeah. her this dossier, which again, we're back to exposition, right? So how does the exposition come out? Um, she gets to read a few lines about this Red Grant guy, and we find out that he was a convicted killer and that he's escaped from prison. And he was mm -hmm. recruited in Istanbul. He sounds like just the kind of guy that they need. And then he further adds to this that he is a paranoid homicidal which that that part doesn't work for me. I mean, the homicidal part, sure. The paranoic part does not seem ideal, because <laughs> <laughs> because you see, a paranoic might kill you, <laughs> even if you're their boss. They yeah. might decide you're up to something. You don't want paranoic. But he says specifically that's the ideal we're looking for. It's like, no, you want Steady. whatever the version, like rational, reasonable homicidal. <laughs> Like as close sociopath. to that as you can get. Yeah. That's what you, you, want want a you want a sociopath. But yeah. here it is. It's time for another Red Grant fun fact. And in the according to the book, he's a werewolf. Right. Well. He's got werewolf tendencies. I don't know. Yes. He gets turned on. He wants to kill during the full moon. Yeah. I work in a library. Everybody goes a little bonkers when the moon is full. And it's going to be full on Monday. <laughs> So this is something right. that they practically teach us in library school, is how bananas people get when it's full moon time. Oh. No, in the restaurant business, we were always very aware of the mm -hmm. cycles of the moon. Yeah. Okay. So this Yeah, if you're working a Saturday day. night and it's a full moon or oh, a holiday, some yeah. kind of like St. God forbid St. Patrick's Day had, came on a full moon, yep. you know. Uh, it, or Mardi Gras. I, I don't Gras. know if a city would survive. Oh. Yeah, Mardi Gras, any of that. Yep. So yeah. You're right, John. We'd be screwed. I was in the service mm -hmm. industry, too. and so I, So while I was reading that... They never came right out and said he was a lycanthrope. They just said. No, I know. 
But he enjoyed. But he the, he the urges would come over him when the moon is full, and that's when he would like to go out and kill people. You should just so see what the, the urge comes over during full moon time. I guess it's, <laughs> exactly. It's that line in Abbott and Costello uh, meet Frankenstein, where Lon Chaney says, "When the moon is full, I turn into a wolf," and I, Bud or Lou says, "Yeah, you and a million other guys." <laughs> Maybe he just likes to kill by moonlight. It, you could see better. You know, Doctor Lecter bit tells more us light. the blood is quite black in the moonlight. Right, that's what Doctor Lecter said. Well, so uh, <laughs> that that that, folks, thank you for listening to fun facts about Red Grant. We'll be bringing more of those to you as we move through this uh, this piece. Uh, all the good stuffs in the book, folks. It's not it's not really the movie. So as they head to see Red Grant, we get to see a little of the Spectre training camp, which is. Delightfully ridiculous. <laughs> it's totally ridiculous, but Harry Saltzman saw Spartacus and loved the gladiator training sequence. And so it said, we should have that for Spectre. And it's it's interesting because eventually this would become what Q Branch would do. Like, we don't really see that many training the bad guys after this. It becomes we're always seeing what Q Branch is up to. And they're doing a similar shtick with lots of guys doing different different things. They're a little close, cr- close to each other, especially the... Dudes playing with fire, which is assen- yeah. which essentially is the only segment of that, the only section of that whole segment that I remember. Maybe because I just, I think fire is interesting. So well, that was the com- part that I wanted to watch the most. <laughs> it's completely ridiculous to have a living man running from a flamethrower. You need to practice flamethrowing running guys, and you need to practice possibly getting flamethrowed by a guy. So you run. It's like, or... Are the guys getting flamethrowed like the guy that from the first scene? I don't know. It doesn't That's look like I it. think. Well, he looks dressed the same as everyone else, though. So I kind of... The thing is, if you took every... It's it's a great tracking shot through the scene. Wide angle, you can see activity. But if you actually like cut to the different sections of this, it would be absolutely hilarious. Like the door, the doorway has like rocking men, you know, like a uh-huh. flat wooden men that are just rocking back and forth. Like as if you'd be in a situation where you were pointing your gun at a guy who's going like, Hey, 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 <laughs> I don't know what they're trying to practice. There. Keep it moving, so hilarious. Folks. Keep it moving. Yeah. Lots of shiny things and explosions and Wilhelm yep. screams and flamethrowers and just keep it moving. And the audience isn't going to think about it too, too hard. Not unless they do a the podcast. They guess what? couldn't not unless they're doing a podcast. You know, you're right. like good right up to the point where a bunch of nerds do a podcast about your movie. Uh huh. That's true. Yeah. I, I though I will I will submit that that guy getting chased by the flamethrower was in the running for having to put on the James Bond mask and get killed by Red Grant. Could be and for one reason or another he didn't get he didn't get that gig. So we're back to having that dungeon. We theorized the dungeon full of prisoners that are just yep. used, and and then you know he he specifically states we use live targets you know mm-hmm. in the scene to remind us of that again so yeah sure why not Let's, he's dressed exactly the same as them which just makes me go i don't know but uh but yeah sure why not that guy's did just some know, prisoner do you notice how we get out of that scene hmm not remembering exactly so it cuts to a second wide shot that is basically them walking into the scene and they put that at the end to make it look like the thing is twice as big oh, as right, it really right, right. is. Because if you look, it's the, same, it's the same stuff going on. So it's a really brilliant move to just double the scale of the piece by, by just you know using a different shot of the same location. 
It's like the Hanna Barbera. It's like the Hanna Barbera technique. You just yeah, exactly. keep rolling the background of the of the room. <laughs> See, and I yeah, was paying. That's right. I was paying attention to what the characters were doing, and I was my eye was drawn to Cleb again, and just watching her walk purposefully and look like, yeah, this is uh, meets with my approval. And again, I, this is just just looking at what she's wearing, how she's moving. And you could see that she could easily outpace all of these guys. But then what I, this w odd touch to her costume, she's got these little pleats at her skirt. And I was like, that is not something I would put Rosa Klebb in. That is just, <laughs> maybe that's the skirt that came with the suit top, but sh it should be a pencil skirt or not flare. That's just right. too much. So Too stylish? <sighs> it's, Yeah. It's just yeah. a little too – it's the outfit of a woman who pays more attention than you'd expect her to to her appearance, which didn't go, which doesn't match the character and what drives mm -hmm. her. Okay. So, so fantasy. So, so Hollywood glamour fantasy being injected in. But uh, There's a dissolve, lest we forget we're in the same space. We dissolve to them walking to where – Grant is getting his massage, so this is this is where they're making sure everything is nicely knit together. And she says, "Call him over," and he says, "Grant." And Grant moves very quickly, hops to it. Wait a minute, yep. back up, guys. She stops short. She doesn't want to go near him. He's naked. We already figured out that she ah. doesn't like guys, and so that's an abrupt stop because all the rest of those guys they would have gone plowing past her, and they stop because she stops. So she gets that far, and she sees this comely woman. She sees this naked man, and she just stops. Her sensibilities are shocked for a minute, and that's when she says, call him over, as in, I'm not going yeah, over sure. there. Is it because she doesn't want to go near the girl or because she doesn't want to go near the guy or just the whole thing is just a little too sexy for her? I, I took that as the whole thing was just, she was just disgusted and didn't want to go yeah. anywhere near that. Yeah. Didn't, nowhere near it. Now, she doesn't have any trouble going near him once he comes over. No, but then he turns into just... A statue. Yes. I was going to say a piece of meat, and that's probably not polite. <laughs> that's true, yeah. But, and I thought, oh, cool, female gaze. There's my notes. <laughs> yeah, he's looking good. He, yeah. He's in great shape. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just, we just talked about Jaws recently, and it just seems like a different specimen totally altogether. <laughs> Just completely different. There's a few. There's a few bottles of scotch in between Jaws and From Russia with Love. Okay, is it wrong? But I like the older Robert Shaw more than I like. No, the the, there's one. nothing wrong with that. <laughs> hey, he's he's a he's a sexy man all the way. Yeah. If you ask me. All you got to do is watch Robin and Marion and see him twenty years later. The both of them, Connery and and Shaw, and they have a big good fight in that one as well. Well, I do want to think. You know, talk about we, we're going to get to what she does with Red Grant. Now that he's standing there at attention, she inspects him a little bit, walks around him, puts on some <laughs> brass knuckles, and just wallops in the, in the solar plexus, right? And it's good. It's a good moment because she, he needs to prove that he's be unaffected by this. That's what she's testing. And he is physically unmoved, but his face, it hurts. His face hurt. It shows just a little wince mm -hmm. which is good mm -hmm. he's not he's not drago from from rocky four he's a guy he just can withstand pain 
You know what I mean? And, uh, but I think then she says, he'll do basically he'll do and walks away. And that makes, that makes you have to go, wait, what did she just do? Did she just hop on a plane, <laughs> fly here, get a helicopter, go like all this, just to punch a guy with some brass knuckles. And that's all she needed. It's to me, that's hilarious to think it's about hilarious. going through all of that. Just to punch a guy in the gut with rewind a little bit because we went from call him over and you skipped another thing that Rosa Klebb does. She turned, I mean, so first of all, where she get the knuckle duster, but maybe she's got a pocket in her skirt, but right before that call him over, he comes over and then there's a scene, a real quick where the next thing you see is her handing her purse off to one of those guys standing oh, behind yeah. her. So she doesn't want them touching her, but doesn't have any problem with having them hold her stuff. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty cool. And then there's really quick, you see the guy holding her, her red leather bag. And he's like, I don't know what the fuck to do with this. Oh, sorry, I'll stop <laughs> swearing. I'm really sorry. Um, no, it's, we like swearing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. That's so in charge. Here, hold my bag and hold my bag so I can punch your God. <laughs> mm -hmm. And Wait, then is... she circles him, and you know she's putting the knuckle duster on, but where is it? Where, I mean, she had time to pull it out of her bag and no one saw, and then pull it out of her bag. No one sees her do that, and then she hits him. So I was like, well, looks at him, and then she hits him. Do you think maybe she pulled it out of her bag before? Yeah, she must have. I think that's probably what She happened. must have, but... Yeah, but you don't see. That's why she hands the bag off to. Right here, it's and light. You, know, you can hold it now. I've taken the heavy thing out. It's hard not to envision. I didn't think about that the whole bag exchange, but it's hard not to envision a comedy beat at the end of that scene. Now, where the guy she just wa keeps walking, and the guy standing, he's like the last guy you see in the shot, still holding the bag. Like, uh, okay, <laughs> just follows her. But you know, <laughs> that's John, that's where we are in cinema now. It was a bit of a comedy beat for me. Because the mm -hmm. minute I saw that, I went, hilarious. This this woman who's calling all the shots is just tossing her bag off to this this burly guard behind her. And, yeah. and then it immediately gets serious and a little sadistic. Yeah. She takes a lot of pleasure out of punching him. Did you notice that? Yeah, she's she's having fun. I mean, <laughs> that, why else would she get on a plane and come? Clearly, she was looking forward to this, so she wouldn't have gone to all this effort. Did you see him flinch right before she hits him? Did you see him tighten his? No. He definitely, he definitely tightens his gut. Which is he, which is fine, right? It's not like, it's yeah. not like he uh cr the performance was a crack. It's he's got the instincts. Yeah, he he sensed her coming around. He knew something was gonna, about to happen. Well, the other and, thing know. that makes me suggest is that maybe she whacked him pretty good. The you know when they oh you filming. mean the the actual filming? Yeah, it could be. No, he winces. His face goes. Right afterwards, <laughs> but it seems performative. It seems it does seem yeah. like he's supposed to be doing that part, which I like because this, the idea of it, he's an indestructible monster versus he's a guy who can absorb pain and deal with it. To me, that second one is way is more, more interesting. interesting. Yeah. So we get another dissolve as they're walking away, after she says, "Send him to me in twenty four hours in Istanbul," and we go to Istanbul, right? And we've got this beautiful establishing mm -hmm. shot with the minarets in the foreground and the Hagia Sophia in the background. Or at the time, I guess at that time it was the Santa Sophia. And Terence Young says in one of the commentaries that they spent days cooking all over Turkey trying to find the best places to put the camera for establishing shots. And then he went into a hotel, and there was a postcard rack, 
and it had pictures of all of the things that they had spent days looking to find. And mm -hmm. Brian De Palma tells a similar anecdote about maybe it was when he was doing Bonfire, the Vanities, but same deal where he like they spent days scouting all of this stuff. And then he's like, and then we saw postcards and we realized that you should always check the postcards first because somebody ahead of you has already found the right. best shots of the city. Right. But it is a gorgeous shot. What do we have to say? This almost feels like one of those transitions where it's time to just move on to the ne next episode. Like, what do we really have to say beyond that about this? Because we're going to have a lot more to say next week, right? Right, about and, and that's what's so cool is that there's that there's the establishing shot, and then there's a hard cut. So mm -hmm. it goes a dissolve to Istanbul, and then boom, hard cut to the to the consulate, the sign saying Russian consulate, which is where our seven minutes end. But you're right; it has just moved us into a new sequence of the movie. Yeah, yeah. So that pretty much brings us to the close of these minutes. Katie, do you have anything that we've missed? No, I think I, I, I think I reminded enough. Like I kept watching Rosa Klebb the whole time. So this was a fun seven minutes, and it was very interesting to see how well the screenwriter took ten chapters of stuff and mashed it into these seven minutes. It's because I went back and reread this section and thought this was really well done um, for all the exposition. This was, it got the job done and it didn't seem clunky. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, is there anything you need to plug or tell us where do you, are you on Twitter? Do we want to oh. find you or is there any of that kind of stuff? Yes, I can be followed on Twitter at Marion Librarian and I'm Katie Stover on Instagram. I will, uh, I will shill the heck out of this show and have a lot of lot of social media to do and I will be constantly plugging you all. My friend Eric in New York has already he's he's been following along, so he's watching from Russia with Love. He's reading the book and he's following nice. the tweets. So Well cool. Well we, our Twitter you uh, folks you can find us at 007 by seven podcast. You can also come over to our Facebook page and uh, enjoy the conversation over there. And we do have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash alien minutes. We'll see you next week for minutes 15 through 21. See you then. <laughs>